Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, our text for this morning's message is Deuteronomy 19, verses 15 through 21. Hear now the word of God. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you And those who remain shall hear and fear. And hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. Life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, you are truly a loving God. You are a merciful God, the scriptures so clearly declare. But you are also a just God. Help us, Father, to love and appreciate and worship all of your attributes. Help us, Father, this morning even as we discuss your law, to make sure that it's in a right place in our minds and hearts. Reveal, Father, to us your justice. We reveal, we pray, your righteousness and your statutes and ordinances that we might, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, even as we recited this morning, seek to walk in them. And yet at the same time, Father, may we never look at those statutes apart from the grace of God, lest they become a ministry of death. Bless us now, Father, as we seek to understand the ways of the living God. In Jesus' name, amen. Psych 5. Some of you guys go to El Camino? Anybody? They still have Psych 5? Psych 5 was the basic introductory psychology class taken by all college freshmen. Though 35 years is the gap between then and now for me, There were two things I remember my instructor pounding into my 19-year-old newly converted head. Spare the rod, spoil the child, which was a rough interpretation of Proverbs 13.24, was absurd. And the death penalty was ineffective as a deterrent to crime. Now, that second point was something that I heard in virtually every psychology class, and I took a lot of them, and sociology class that I ever attended. The death penalty is not a deterrent to crime. I don't know if they're still teaching that. Anybody that's still kind of commonly taught in schools? 
death penalty is not a deterrent. That the death penalty is not a deterrent just didn't seem right to me. At very least, the person executed wouldn't commit another crime. But it also seems so basic to human nature, and if I could call it a survival instinct, that people wouldn't commit certain heinous crimes if they knew the consequences were severe. I don't know. That just seems so obvious to me. It, does, it did then and it does now. I'll bet some of you drive a little over the speed limit, don't you? <laughs> at, least, at least one person does. She's like, but never on Sabbath. How about if there was a death penalty for going over the speed limit? I'll bet most of you would drive a few miles an hour under the speed limit. Sell your car, right? And make sure you don't walk too fast. The passage we just read seems to verify, I think, that which is obvious with the quote, And those who remain shall hear and fear, and hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. But even more shocking in the above passage is instruction coming from God, which if we read it at first glance, appears so contrary to what we read in Scripture. Quote, your eye shall not pity. End quote, God says. Your eye shall not pity. But does not God also say in Micah 6, 8, one of our favorite people, you know, many people favorite passage. I love it as well. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of him but to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? How does one love mercy? Yet show no pity. Because pity and mercy are almost synonyms. We'll get to that in a minute. This morning, we will complete what has amounted to a seven-lesson preface to the Ten Commandments. So next week, you can actually invite your friends because we will begin the first commandment. Now, in quick review, this series, which I've entitled The Commands of Christ, is a follow-up on the Great Commission where Jesus taught that disciples are to be instructed to obey all things that he commanded, hence the commands of Christ. So we make disciples, we baptize them, and teach them to obey all things that Jesus commanded. I, I certainly would hope that we're beginning to appreciate the beauty of God's law. I mean, especially when you read David talking about God's law and he compares it to beautiful jewelry and things like that. I hope that's our attitude, that we look at the law of God and go, that is a the God. God's law is a beautiful thing. It's his inscription of genuine and authentic love. When Jesus was asked what commandment was greatest, his answer was to what? Love God and love your neighbor. See, Jesus defines love as obedience to God's commands. I mean, isn't that interesting? Because commands seem, commandments and law seem so hard, but love seems so gentle and soft. 
But Jesus didn't make that distinction. What is the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment is to love. We also discussed how James calls the law of God the perfect law of liberty. Right? To be set free. The law of God liberates. It sets us free from so many things. It sets us free from legalism and manipulation. If I know the law of God, you can't start making me feel guilty about not doing what you think I should do when I know what God thinks I should or should not do. It sets us free from consequences, recognizing that to disobey the law of God results in consequences. It sets us free from bondage, recognizing that if we as individuals or as a people neglect the law of God, there are corporate consequences that are, as the scriptures teach, bondage. But most importantly, and hopefully this is always a recurring theme, and I'll get to that too, it reveals to us or it sets us free from pride. It liberates us from self-confidence. Confidence is such an interesting word, right? Those of you who speak Spanish know what cone means, right? What does that mean? With. How many of you speak Latin? Fide. Come on, fide. What's that mean? Right, it means faith. With faith. Self-confidence means that I have confidence in me. And that is a... I mean, and certainly in some respects that might make sense. But when it gets right down to it, when we stand before God, we don't want self-confidence. We want confidence in Christ. That's where our faith needs to be. The law of God casts us to have confidence not in self but in Christ. A recurring theme in our study of God's law is how the law of God is not the means by which we approve ourselves before God. We are approved by God's grace and the gospel by the blood of Christ. May we always remember that. Even our desire, friends, to obey God's law does not come from God's law but by the grace of God in the gospel. As we read in the Old Testament, anticipating the new covenant, Ezekiel 36:27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So even my desire to walk in God's law doesn't come from the law so much as it comes from the gospel. That's why the, the order was to make disciples and then teach them to obey all that I've commanded and not reversed. Another common error we addressed is the supposed conflict between spirit and law. Well, you have the law, I have the spirit is a common discussion. That the leading of the spirit is somehow at odds with being led or directed by God's law. But friends, the spiritual man recognizes God's law as coming from God. And the spiritual man seeks to obey the law of God. We then embarked upon a sub-issue known as theonomy. Theonomy specifically addresses the extent of the application of the Old Testament civil code to modern politics. How should I vote? Who should I vote for? What kind of laws should I vote for? How should I operate in this area or arena of my life known as politics, as a citizen? You know, we're church members, right? And we're family members, but we're also citizens. And we certainly don't think that God gets access to two of those three. We don't compartmentalize our Christian life. He is Lord of all. And so we, I kind of address this issue that has got the nickname theonomy, which really just means law of God, but specifically addresses 
to what extent should the civil law that we see in the Old Testament, because that's where it's really kind of uh, protracted, to what extent should that provide a model for the way modern governments should function? Now, I put forth four reasons why I think theonomy is important. Number one, the preeminence of Christ in all areas, including politics. He is Lord of Lords and King of who? King of Kings. It's a very political tone. Secondly, it addresses the influx of relativism in the very, very large arena of civil law. You know, none of us want to be relativists when it comes to our marriage. None of us want to be relativists when it comes to our morality and our ethics and our personal life. I would hope not. But we seem to be very comfortable with being relativists when it comes to the political arena. We have no objective moral standard. We become pragmatists. Thirdly, it is a key factor in the spreading of the gospel. Since it is generally civil leaders God uses to open or close doors to the preaching of the gospel. We pray that in China, the civil leaders will open the door and allow the gospel to come in. We pray that those uh, we've ministered to as a church who are in labor camps are set free. I mean, we recognize the sovereignty of God. Nonetheless, we're praying that God will change people's minds, that the gospel might be preached because it is through the gospel that people come to faith in Christ. And fourth, it reveals the justice of the gospel since there is no other arena which more clearly demonstrates the just and due penalty for sin than the civil arena. Friends, a society which loses its sense of justice will not so clearly perceive the due penalty of sin, which, by the way, is necessary for us to understand to appreciate the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ was a public civil execution. And when we lose what that is all about, it it affects our understanding of the cross itself. This morning, I want to complete this somewhat lengthy preface with some brief answers to some practical questions regarding this issue known as theonomy. And then finally, just a couple of paragraphs in terms of a thoughtful look at what God says as a preface to his commands. So I'm going to ask really four questions. or I'm going to have four topics today. One, is God's civil law harsh or compassionate? Two, What do the secondary standards of our church say about this issue, theonomy? Three, in a society which views God's laws as extreme and ridiculous, how are we to reasonably apply this theonomic concept? And finally, what is a proper approach to God's law? So, first question. Is God's law, his civil law, harsh or compassionate? To be sure. The civil laws of God, especially as they are presented in Leviticus 20, give a harsh appearance. I don't know if any of you have actually gone there and read these. I talked about them in, I think, the first sermon I gave on this issue. Adultery, homosexuality, kidnapping, rape, etc. are capital crimes that are to be given the death penalty. Many of us look at those laws realizing that we'd be in San Quentin on death row if they were still in force today. And it's scary to think of how many of us are in or, uh, ordained positions who would be on death row if these laws were enforced today. We had uh, one of our uh, ministers in our Q&A time just as much as confessed that he wouldn't have made it past 20 if those laws were enforced today. Wasn't that somebody said that? 18, right? And you're looking at it going, I would, be, I would have been executed 
You know, I mean, I, hopefully this would exclude those of you who were raised in Christian homes, but our church has a lot of people who weren't. We got Christian homes now. Those Christian homes wouldn't even be in existence if these laws were enforced today. So certainly it does seem austere. But friends, let me just help you, not only in your hermeneutics, in terms of how do you translate the Bible and interpret the Bible, not translate, but interpret the Bible, but in just pure logic, the fact that I might deserve the death penalty simply doesn't address the issue. How amazingly self-centered have we become that we evaluate and dismiss God's law based upon the fact that we're transgressors of it? That can't be the law. If that were, if that were the law, I'd be guilty. Okay, is that, does that seem logical to you? That God chose not to execute David for his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah did not mean that David was not deserving of death. If God, according to his own wisdom and providence, choose to let those who are worthy of death live, something God does all the time, by the way, when murderers aren't caught. That does not mean that the murderer does not deserve death from a perspective of civil law. Do you understand the distinction there? I mean, God can make that choice. God can say, you know what? I'm not going to have you. I'm going to, I'm going to have it where you're not caught. Matter of fact, I'm going to have you live in a land where you're not even guilty. Does that mean that the person isn't guilty? I mean, I hope none of us have such a high view of secular civil government that we think they can actually determine what the law of God is. But the passage we read earlier where God tells us to show no pity, that passage, that Deuteronomy passage, is the passage which also reveals how merciful and compassionate God truly is. Number two in your outline, no false witnesses. The passage that we just read reveals God's concern for the innocent who are accused. People will sometimes make an argument against uh, the law of God, and these capital crimes, because we, we find out sometimes later that Innocent people were put to death, right? Especially with DNA. We're going, wow, we've got, they're innocent people. And we found out later they were executed and they shouldn't have been. But not only does a conviction require two or three witnesses, but those witnesses, if they are shown to be false, will have done to them what they thought to have done to their brother. In other words, if you falsely accuse somebody of a crime that's worthy of death and you're shown to be a perjurer, you get death. Now, how many people do you think would perjure themselves recognizing that those are the consequences? Friends, by this standard, by the way, most people on death row in America today wouldn't be on death row. Two eyewitnesses, three eyewitnesses. And we could talk about forensics and all that. But the point is, somebody needs to be responsible to the point where they will suffer what they're trying to get that person to suffer if they are wrong. If this were the law, in our, you, know, you talk about God's law being harsh. I can't imagine that there are a whole bunch of people on death row who'd love this to be the law, who had no eyewitnesses, that they're on death row based upon some kind of circumstantial evidence or what have you. By this standard, those who are truly innocent of particular crimes will seldom be falsely accused. Friends, God is very compassionate toward the innocent. 
And when I say innocent, by the way, I'm not talking about sin nature. We're, we're all guilty. I'm talking about the innocent in terms of civil innocence. The fact that you're not guilty of a crime. Three, compassion for society. We also learn from this passage that God is compassionate toward a society. Evil people should fear to do evil. And that fear will deter them. God is very compassionate. He will not suffer the innocent to be convicted, nor the victimized, nor victimized by the evil which surrounds them. God is concerned with the innocent. That brings us to that funny little sounding comment where we're told that our eye shall not pity. I'll tell you, when I look at verses like that, I don't know about you, when I'm reading my Bible, and I look at a verse like that, and I think, I need to figure out what that means. Because that will help contour my understanding of the whole Bible. I don't want to ignore that. I want to find out exactly what does that mean when God says, your eye shall not pity. The Hebrew word, which is used for pity, means to, quote, show mercy, have compassion, with a focus on sparing or delivering one from a great punishment. That's what God does for us as sinners. He shows mercy. He has pity. And he spares us the punishment by punishing his son instead. So how do we square this with the clear biblical admonition to be merciful? <clears throat> All right? No pity, pity. The answer, friends, is simply context. In a context of that which is personal, especially within the church, it is the responsibility of the faithful Christian to exercise mercy and to seek to restore the erring brother. Galatians 6.1, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. I hope that's the attitude that every last single one of us has. That we look at people and they sin against us and they're sinful, that our attitude is we're going to love them, we're going to pray for them, we're going to seek to restore them. We're going to, because you know what? That could be me next week. How do you want to be treated? When you fail, or do you think you can't? I mean, Paul, this is the job of the church. It's the job of the Christian to confront our erring brother in, in a desire to restore that erring brother and bring them back from their trespass. But when a criminal, now this is the context, when a criminal is brought before the civil magistrates, whether it's a judge or a jury, he is to be tried and given a fair and due process, as we just talked about a little bit. If he is indeed guilty, the judge or jury should not view themselves as having the right to reduce or forego the due punishment. They don't have the right to do that. By what standard would they do this for some and not others? By what standard would a judge or a jury say, well, you know what, I'm going to pity you, but I'm not going to pity him. This would result in judicial anarchy with judges and juries capriciously convicting some and releasing others based upon what kind of mood they're in or how friendly the defendant might look or how crowded the prison might be or what have you. You're just not, that's not the role you have as a judge or a jury or as a civil magistrate. You can't go, you know what, I'm in a good mood today. Get out of here. Yeah, I know that what you did. I know you dropped the, you set a house on fire. And, just go on, come on. You know, because you just had the double latte and you're just feeling, hey, I'm in a merciful mood today. We are not, you are not, the judge is not to operate that way. Criminals who are guilty of capital crimes are often set free, perhaps in the name of compassion or mercy, 
or perceived rehabilitation only to commit crimes again. Are you not? Okay, we don't govern our theology by frustration, but don't you get a little frustrated when you read of some terrible crime that took place and then you read that the person who committed the crime had been guilty of that crime before and was set free? An awful crime, and you're thinking, why is the person out there? Why have we set the predator free? Friends, it is highly compassionate of God to protect a society from those who would harm the innocent. That's compassion. Just laws, number four. When it comes to the civil arena, it's up to God's ministers, and I call them ministers because the Apostle Paul calls them ministers, to be just. The passage teaches that we just read, the Deuteronomy passage, life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. These words are often used by the world. I don't know if you hear this. I don't know. I hear it. Those words, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, are often used by the world as a criticism, as if the Bible were overly austere. You ever hear that? Oh, you guys and your eye for eye. What it actually asserts is that the punishment for crimes should not be overly harsh or overly lenient. They are to be just. You don't cut a hungry man's hand off for stealing a loaf of bread, nor do you set a murderer free because he seems nice. Justice is critical. All right. Second issue here. What do the secondary standards of our church say about theonomy? Uh, Maybe some of you don't really care that much about it. You should care about it. Our primary standard in this church is anybody know? Yeah, the Bible. It's a good primary standard. You know, you realize uh, all churches have secondary standards. You realize that. There's no church without... Unless there's a church where somebody just gets up and reads the Bible and then dismisses everybody, every church has secondary standards. Secondary standards may be a statement of faith or they may simply be whatever the pastor decides to teach on a given Sunday. Our secondary standards include a document called the Westminster Confession. It's a sort of elongated statement of faith. It's 33 chapters of telling people what we actually believe the Bible teaches. There's a portion of our secondary standard, the Westminster Confession, chapter 19, on the law of God that addresses this issue. Now, I'm going to read that portion. I'm going to talk just for a second about this. But um, even just recently, uh, we were driving and with one of the elders in the church. And he, he goes, you know what? It seems like there's a portion of our confession that's inconsistent with kind of what you're teaching. How do you explain that? And now here's a, an elder in our church who's pretty savvy, pretty sharp. And if he has that question, I'm certain many of you have that question, especially if you've ever read it. And I'm going to read it right now and create my own problem and hopefully answer my own problem. Because it reads like this. To them, that's Israel, Also, as a body politic, as a political body, he, God, gave sundry, various, sundry judicial laws, civil laws, which expired together with the state of that people, when Israel ended as God's covenant people, not obliging any other now 
further than the general equity thereof may require. All right, let me just talk about this real briefly. Now, at first glance, this appears contrary to what I've been teaching for the last five weeks. But it really isn't. See, it is not the theonomic position, at least the way I would understand it and teach it, that we simply take the laws of the old covenant, Israel, and plop them down in the middle of 21st century America. That's not what we're talking about. We don't just take that and go, okay, these are our laws right here, right now. God has given in the Old Testament laws unique to certain tribes that wouldn't apply in the New Covenant at all. Laws for the Levites that we don't even have anymore. Laws in terms of the tribes and these types of things. And the laws given by God, though detailed in many respects, are not exhaustive laws. When God's law, for example, demands restitution of four sheep for one stolen and five bulls for one stolen, one must seek to understand why is there a difference? Why is it four sheep for one sheep, but five bulls for one bull? Why isn't it just four for one or five for one? Perhaps it could be compared to stealing one's car versus stealing one's tractor. One just being a vehicle of transportation, but the other one necessary for production and income. I'm not saying that's the answer, but what you have to understand is that there is a reason God made certain laws in terms of that agricultural area at the time. And, of course, the Bible doesn't mention every type of thing or animal that can be stolen or every type of crime that be committed. You understand? It's not like you can go there and go, I mean, there are things that that are in those laws that we don't really have the exact thing to represent. I mean, there's not an exhaustive list. And it doesn't actually explain every little detail. So to take that, you know, what was happening in a you know, 1500 B.C. agrarian society what was, was surrounded by war on all sides all the time and just try to plop that down in 21st century America is kind of simplistic. You understand the problem there? If you've read the Old Testament, you can understand the problem. However, this portion of our confession, I believe, is highly theonomic. Because it basically teaches that the old covenant political laws serve as a model for us and that we are, in fact, obliged to utilize them to determine what is fair or just. It says general equity. It says that those laws are no longer obliging now other than the general equity thereof may require. Okay, what does general equity mean? It's not how much you own in your house versus how much it's worth, okay? Equity means fairness. What's fair? What I, I guess what I'm, my point is, you look at the Old Testament laws, the Old Covenant laws, and they teach you what's fair. You know what another word for fair is? Just. It, those laws teach us what a just punishment is or what a just restitution is. Let me provide a scenario. And I just have to say, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if you agree with me. I know, keep in mind, this is uh, why I'm a theonomist E. So I've hit this for five times. It'll be my last time. I heard an mm, but I wasn't sure if that was an amen or if somebody was just clearing their throat. I'm not sure if you agree or disagree or what have you. But I know this. Most people I know, even within my own denomination, don't really agree uh, with what I'm saying, but 
one of the main reasons, at least from my perspective, we chose this denomination was because there were great teachers in it who did. So, you know, it's a little bit of a controversial issue. But as terms of our secondary standards, I think it does teach it. And let me provide a scenario. And I think the scenario that I've given to so many people, I've never heard a good answer. And during the Q&A, feel free to give me a good answer. If a man committed a capital crime, say kidnapping, in 20 B.C., that would be in the Old Covenant, right? The crime would incur the death penalty. Say he wasn't caught. Now say the same man commits the same crime at the same place in 20 A.D. Friends, if we answer anything other then that man still deserves the same punishment for the crime. We are not holding to our church's secondary standards of general equity. You understand? If it was fair 40 years ago, in the same political environment, in the same agrarian district or what have you, and we, if we just pass time and go, you know what? That punishment for that crime is no longer fair because we are A.D. instead of B.C., if that's the disposition, then general equity in our confession doesn't mean anything. That's completely wiped out. We, it might, might as well not even be there. As a matter of fact, there are people who think it should be taken out. I just don't happen to be one of them. All right. My second to last question. And it's getting shorter and I'm almost done. So take a deep breath and hang in there with me. In a society which views God's laws as extreme and ridiculous, how are we to reasonably apply this theonomic concept. Okay, Pastor Paul, for five weeks you've been talking theoretically, uh, theologically, philosophically. What, what, obviously, you know, if anybody runs on a platform of, you know, death for adulterers, yeah, you know, death for adulterers, death for fornicators, death for homeless, do you think you're going to win the election in 20th century America? What is actually foolish and harsh and ludicrous so often the argument against theonomy is that it is harsh, it is weird, and it is simply impossible to apply. Friends, I hope we can begin to understand how arrogant we are when we suggest that God's laws, which reflect his own character, are overly harsh. To suggest that is to suggest that God himself is overly harsh. My friends, if we think God's laws are foolish and ludicrous, it is very likely that God thinks that we're foolish and ludicrous. And who do you think is right? So we really need to decide who we are going to trust. The wisdom and law of man are the wisdom and law of God. Some of us, you know, you talk about the offense of the gospel and that the Christian faith is so, you know, and for the most part in our culture, uh, I think Christianity is kind of just an annoyance to people when they turn on televangelists who are making a lot of money and all this stuff. But what I have found is things like this, uh, things like Calvinism, uh, the sovereignty of God. These are the things that are really, really uh, are an offense. These are the things that really affect the real decisions you make in life. And the world does not like it. Well, you know what? I may be wrong in my whole approach here. I'm, a, I'm just a person and I, you know, I, hope, I think I'm right. You know, I'm willing to be instructed. But when it gets right down to it, you have to ask yourself, you know, is, is Christ and his laws, as they are revealed in the Bible, to be the standard for the law of the land? And if not, who is your master in that arena? Because I'd be really interested to find the answer to that question. 
what is the practical application of theonomy in a secular society? Some would argue that it is so impossible to fully apply that we shouldn't even apply it at all. Right? So they'll just go, see what you're talking about, Pastor Paul, is just impossible. But how many of us govern ourselves that way? Because we fail to do everything? We do nothing? I think there's a simple principle that needs to be applied. And here's my one, two paragraphs on application before we finish. In logic, it's called an argumentum a fortiori. A fortiori, which denotes the argument from the stronger reason. For example, if God's law teaches that homosexuality is a capital crime, how much more should we vote against laws which aim towards sanctioning gay marriage? It's an a fortiori argument. Do you understand? If I know by the word of God that it should be a capital crime, how much more should I vote against it being a sanctioned union? If God's law teaches that adultery is a capital crime, how much more should we vote against laws which seek to justify and promote pornography? I mean, you look at this, you go, God has revealed to me how heinous this is, and now there's something I can vote on that addresses this issue, and they want to make it, you know, they want to put it on a, you know, in a bus stop on the bench. They want to put it up, even you drive by, and they want to put it on a billboard. And we come to be so desensitized to it and it's killing us. Friends, I'm not sure if theonomy should be the first com- uh, conversation that we have with our non-Christian friends. There are many topics. Am I also on that I wasn't before or something? With like a one paragraph to go? <laughs> okay, I have to start over. Uh, that's funny. Uh, I mean, I think there are a lot of topics that I don't choose to delve into right away with my non-Christian friends. I, I don't immediately start talking about Calvinism. I don't immediately start talking about eschatology or my different views of the sacraments or sign gifts or women in ministry or on and on. You know, these issues that are controversial. I wouldn't avoid these things, but I think there is something more critical and basic for people to understand. And that's my final, final and I think critical point. So if you haven't really been interested in what I've said so far, please tune in uh, for these last three paragraphs. A proper approach to God's law. What God has done. Before God tells us, and this is getting into the Ten Commandments of Exodus 20, before God tells us what to do, you know what he does? He tells us what he did. Didn't the Great Commission start that way too? Jesus said, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's what I've done. Now you do this. We see this recurring theme throughout the scriptures. Isaiah 6, where Isaiah is caught up into the heavenly realm and they're all worshiping God. He doesn't even worship him. He just confesses his sin. And then God purges his sin. And then he says, here am I, send me. It is always God who acts first. That's why our church service starts with us hearing from God, confessing our sin, receiving his forgiveness, and then praising his name for what he has done. It always starts with God first. The Ten Commandments, how do they begin? They don't begin... Uh, you know, you shall have no other God before me. That's the first commandment. But that's not the way it begins, right? It starts off, I am the Lord thy God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That's how it begins. The Ten Commandments begins not by telling us what to do, but by God telling us what he has done. It is after this preface that the commands are given. 
God doesn't say, keep these commandments and I will bring you out of bondage. Like at the very end, wouldn't that be awful? Give the Ten Commandments and he goes, if you keep these, I will bring you out of bondage. Because they'd still be in bondage. The Apostle Paul uses the bondage of the Israelites in Egypt as an example of being in bondage to sin and death. You realize that. And then drinking from the spiritual rock, which was Christ. You read about that in 1 Corinthians 10 and other places. If, friends, we approach the law thinking that by keeping it we can find peace with God, we will be sadly mistaken. With that frame of mind, the law becomes, as the Apostle Paul said, a ministry of death. We are to rejoice in the superior and more glorious ministry of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.8 Where the veil which blinds our minds to the truth of God's grace is taken away in Christ. God, by the grace of God, He removes the veil and we see the truth of God's grace. Friends, we must approach the law of God with humility, recognizing its danger. Like a small child who runs to his parent whenever a threat appears, we must run to the cross of Christ in light of the convicting power of the commandments of God. We can be like that little yappy dog, you know, that we're yapping the law of God, yapping the law of God, you know, but when a threat comes by, what does the little dog do? He runs right inside of his gate. He runs right to his master. That's what we must do. We can talk all about the law of God, but the moment we think, hey, and I'm pretty good at it, then we are like the yappy dog who doesn't realize that he's only a yappy dog and he thinks he's a St. Bernard. None of us are St. Bernard's. None of us are Cujo. I never saw it, but I told it was a pretty scary dog. We have to recognize how helpless we are before the law of God and we must ever run to the cross of Christ. And friends, may that subdue our hearts this morning as we prepare to partake at the Lord's table. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would see your law as good and glorious. We pray, Father, that it would, above all things, though, remind us how desperately we need the law keeper, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We thank you, Father, that you've chosen to continue to instruct us even in our short-sightedness and even, Father, though we be rebellious, that you have not given up on us and that you will preserve us, that we might persevere in the faith, ever trusting in Jesus Christ and in him alone to give us peace with our maker. In his name we pray. Amen. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.